joining us for Commuter Rail Conversations, a podcast series presented by the Commuter Rail Coalition. This is Coalition CEO, Kellyanne Gallagher. In this episode, Hatch's Director of Transit Advisory Services, Dave Genova, hosts a conversation with Caltrain Executive Director, Michelle Bouchard, and the MBTA's Ryan Gaholan on alternative delivery methods. Before joining Hatch in August of 2020, Dave spent 26 years of his career at Denver RTD, the final four years of which he served as agency general manager. During his tenure, RTD opened four transit corridors in 14 months, six transit corridors in three years, two of which were opened within three weeks of each other. It's a pace of expansion unprecedented in the transit industry. On opposite sides of the country, Caltrain and MBTA are very busy commuter railroads. In this episode, Dave, Michelle, and Ryan discuss the process behind selecting a project delivery method for modernization and capital program updates that need to happen in an active operating environment and how they balance risk. Let's get started. Okay. Well, on behalf of the Commuter Rail Coalition, welcome to this conversation. I'm Dave Genova, Director of Transit Advisory Services for Hatch LTK. Prior to Hatch LTK, I've spent 26 years at the Regional Transportation District in Denver, Colorado. I was involved in all kinds of different capital projects, utilizing a a wide variety of project delivery methods, including design build, design build, finance, operate and maintain, long-term concession agreements and public-private partnerships or P3s. So welcome today to Michelle and Ryan. Thank you for participating in this session. We're discussing project alternative delivery methods, their rise in popularity, the challenges and lessons learned from your experiences I sure are going to be great for listeners. So just a little bit about alternative project delivery methods. There's a a number of them, but some of the more popular ones include uh, some non-traditional approaches to capital project delivery. So those would include like design build, progressive design build, design build operate and maintain, design build finance, operate maintain, concession agreements, public-private partnerships. And there can be hybrids of many kinds in all of these versions. And so we know agencies choose their delivery methods for a variety of reasons. Some are schedule and budget considerations, project financing, risk considerations and allocation. Some of it's around the agency experience and capability with alternative methods. But uh, we're going to learn more about all this as we talk with Michelle and Ryan. But let me just tell you a little bit about each of them. Michelle Bouchard is the acting executive director at Caltrain, the seventh most ridden commuter railroad in the country, overseeing 300 million annual capital and operating budget. PTC implementation, a $2.4 billion corridor electrification project, and an adopted service vision to carry more than 180,000 passengers a day by 2040. Michelle has more than 25 years in the transit industry. While she was away from Caltrain for a short period, she was a group manager at Bay Area Rapid Transit or BART, where she led eBART and Oakland Airport Connector Corridor projects. She returned to Caltrain in 2015 as its chief operating officer and was promoted to be its first ever executive director in April 2021. In 2018, she was named one of Railway Journal's Women in Rail in recognition of her experience, leadership skills, and contributions to the industry and commuter service. So thank you and welcome, Michelle. And then Ryan Koholan is the Chief Railroad Officer at the MBTA in Boston. Ryan's a 27-year veteran who started into the industry, as most of us do, 
out of curiosity. I think he told me he started working in shops as a child. Ryan began working in locomotive shop as a labor and progressed through the ranks and also across disciplines. He's held many positions in the railroad industry, train master, rules examiner, train dispatcher, track inspector, and general manager. Ryan joined the MBTA in 2014 as a railroad operations manager. He's been the chief railroad officer since 2016. In his role, he's responsible for safe and efficient daily operation of the MBTA commuter rail system, as well as the administration of operating agreements with Keolis Commuter Services and with Amtrak and CSX Transportation and other railroads. Ryan also actively maintains his certifications, including his locomotive engineer's qualification, which he obtained at 18 years old. Well, both of you operate incredibly busy commuter railroads, and we know it's really challenging to do major work in an operating environment. And as you consider modernization or capital program updates, uh, how do you go about selection of project delivery methods? And have you used alternative project delivery methods on your railroad? And, you know, we'll, we'll have an opportunity to get into a lot of details later, but I thought we'd just kind of start with a general question. So let's start with you, Michelle. Okay, sure, Dave, and and thanks for the kind introduction. And Ryan, it's really great to meet you. You know, I have to say, MBTA is a whole other version of incredibly busy. We consider ourselves, so I'll I'll say we're moderately busy. So I just want to clarify that. We have a pretty robust capital program. And as you mentioned, we're in the middle of electrifying our railroad. Ryan, I know you've had a project electrifying a portion of your operating railroad. And so I'd be really interested in hearing some of your experience about that. I mean, largely as our capital program has progressed with respect to not only the size, but also the experience that we have in-house we had done things exclusively, you know, design, bid, build. And I think that was uh, due to the nature of those programs, largely infrastructure-based, pretty simple, albeit large, like a grade separation. When we dipped our toe in the alternate delivery method pond was uh, as we were contemplating building the electrified railroad, we knew we had to completely change out the signal system. So we had a systems component with respect to that, as well as, of course, the traction power. And so our experience with design build has been a learning experience. And I think one of the reasons why we did that is that not really knowing quite how we should deliver it as a fairly young delivery organization for large mega projects, we sought opinions from the industry. So Dave, we had people from RTD, we had folks from TriMet, we also had folks from DART come do a workshop with us. We also had folks from VTA down the street come do a workshop with us to figure out, okay, well, what are your attitudes towards risk? What are your goals with respect to the program? Not only risk, but also cost. How do you think you're going to be best able to get you know value for money? And for us, schedule was a big deal. And so when we put all of those objectives in the hopper, we threw them out to our expert you know panelists through these workshops. We made the decision that we were going to go design build. But as you pointed out, design build work on an operating railroad has got to be very carefully approached. And I think that's part of the learning. And as we get more experience, as an example, I think the decision to go in an alternative fashion, yes, you need to outline what are the things that are really important for you as an organization with respect to how the project gets delivered. But then I think the other thing is, you know, what is the experience you have in-house, not consultant, not contracted out, but what is the experience you have in-house that can be brought to bear? 
And I mentioned that because we now have folks in-house who have experience with progressive design build as well as a CMGC. And so, you know, we're looking to take learning from this current experience, as well as the new experience from a human resource perspective that we brought in-house and really try and bring that to bear on the, the next batch of large projects we have. But one thing I can say is, if you think you've got a silver bullet, you've never got a silver bullet. So with that, that's my word of wisdom. Well, that's a good one. There's lots of variables. You know, I, I like what you did about including industry that has kind of been through some of the processes before and doing some workshops. It's just great to learn from others. Ryan, tell us a little bit about your experience. Sure, Dave. Thank you. And Michelle, great to meet you as well. And so many points that you raised up are, I mean, they hold true whether you are the largest, the smallest, or in the middle as far as your operating size, right? But a lot of what you touched on, Michelle, is spot on, right? A live railroad environment, an active railroad environment brings along its own set of challenges. Now, the industry in really history right now, we're seeing this increase in construction across the board and an increase in funding and an increase in opportunity to provide additional service, better service, bigger service. And with that, Michelle talked a little bit about personnel, having the internal knowledge, the institutional knowledge. Now, the MBTA has a dedicated capital delivery department, and they do an exceptional job, and they have for years, and they continue to do so, and they're growing, and they're growing at such a rapid pace. And I think that what my experience has been is you have a lot of very committed project managers, project delivery coordinators, people who have spent a career already building bigger, rebuilding, building great things, doing it in an active railroad environment is a significant challenge to overcome. A system like the MBTA, we have little to no greenfield sites. We have very confined rights of way and a lot of what I'll call legacy capacity constraints. The majority of our infrastructure was built before there was a city of Boston surrounding it. So when we do look at delivering capital programs, capital projects along the active railroad right of way, you need to remember if you are going to make the decision to operate service business as usual, the delivery methods, design build, which is something that we've done an awful lot of, you need to take a step back and look at what's going to drive the approach and the end all vision of what we're going to accomplish. And I have found that as alternative delivery methods come into play to accelerate construction, to get projects done, historically, the railroad sort of took the back seat. And we let capital programs and capital delivery run the show. Why? Because they build things. I operate things. But capital delivery, they deliver capital. And we have found that we've had to evolve how we approach that level of collaboration. And it is very much morphed into a what I'll call a level of in-your-face collaboration. Now, that sounds a little hairy, right? You know, communication can overcome almost any problem there is. And even internal in an organization, right? You have silos and we try not to build them up. But when you look at the level of capital construction and project delivery methods within an active railroad envelope, silos have to be knocked down. That communication has to kick off early. It has to be often and it has to be effective. And sometimes those conversations become very uncomfortable. But as a leader in this industry, you cannot shy away from those uncomfortable conversations, assuming that everyone's going to figure it out on their own. You have to guide that. You have to direct it and you have to drive it. You know, it's interesting. You're kind of leading right into a question I was going to ask you. 
you know, I've heard it. I can't remember exactly what you said in your face collaboration. And uh, at RTD, we talked a lot about the healthy tension between capital and operations. Right. And and my time was mostly in safety. But I found that, as you said, it just takes an awful lot of collaboration and challenging discussions. Right. Because people have a little bit of different objectives, depending on which part of the organization they're feeding in. So knocking down those silos is critical. Ryan, when we spoke, you said that your program evolved over time from small annual investments to, to about two or $300 million a year. And you talked about some of that evolution that happened and occurred. But is there anything else you'd expand on and how you managed that evolution and what were some of the biggest challenges? Sure. So we historically had a capital program of, you know, anywhere from nine to $10 million annually. There would typically be one I'll call a major project, a new station or a station being rebuilt or a very small expansion. You know, but there was typically a 30 or 40 million dollar project in the background in some additional capital work. We saw that program balloon starting sometime around 2015 into 2016. And now you just pre-COVID, you know, that capital program expanded just on the railroad side of MBTA to about 200 million dollars annually. Now, a lot of that are uh, regulatory requirements such as positive train control and all the associated components of that. But a few things that that growth forced us to do, we had to really reevaluate how we manage the interface of capital work into railroad operations. You know, reporting structures and organizational structures, we have processes in place today that If you had told me 10 years ago you would have, I would say, no, 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 we don't need that. We got this, right? Typical railroad mentality. We got this covered. (laughs) But very eye-opening when all of a sudden you have your capital delivery department saying, by the way, I have 300 people coming onto your property. They've never set foot on the railroad. (laughs) How are you going to manage it? And, uh, you know, that is extremely eye-opening. So, you know, there is no... Uh, Michelle, I'm going to steal your term. There is no silver bullet to kill yeah. it. Your, your own processes have to evolve. They will be yeah. ever-changing. And you need to realize that any plan you make today, tomorrow, you might be adjusting it depending on the needs of project completion. Yeah. And those 300 people are coming next week, right? And they haven't been through roadway worker or anything else, right? So <laughs> The topic of roadway worker protection. You know, yeah. we would get up to train 15, 20 people a month. You know, and we've had to evolve that and come up with different training methods, different recertification methods, initial training, but also targeting it again to an audience who is used to that greenfield site, right? That vacant lot, building a building, right? The building goes up, the building's built and on to the next. You introduce that into a live railroad environment particularly one of the busier parts uh, of the country and the top end of the Northeast corridor, there's a lot of trains and they're going by fast. Yeah. Michelle, you've mentioned to me that the agency or the owner's team needs to be geared up for whatever delivery method you choose. Can you elaborate on that a minute? Yeah, absolutely. Our program has not expanded the way Ryan's has, but I mean, to the degree that we got very comfortable with a design bid build kind of approach to things, that's how we got comfortable. We knew the types of skills and experience that were needed, and we knew the types of skills that we could contract out. We're heavily dependent, by the way, on contracted resources, so consultants, et cetera. And to some degree, I'm sure all railroads do to some degree. I think we more so than others. And I'm saying that in a way that one of the key pieces of learning that I took 
by the way, from our PTC implementation, which was kind of design build, to be totally honest, because we had started down a different path than the traditional IETMS approach that we ended up with. But the point was, you need to spend more time on your organization before you start putting things out to bid. And that is a lesson that we learned the hard way. And it's really questioning and understanding exactly how that organization needs to be formed to be able to marshal a project from sort of planning to design to implementation. And if you're doing something that's alternate delivery, that sequence isn't necessarily like that. It's happening at once. And and it has to do, you know, a lot more with how do you position your organization to better interface with the contractor? There's all sorts of elements that you need to look at. And I mean, I'm begging you people out there, please, before you press play on putting any document out on the street, just look at your organization. And Ryan, I mean, you pointed out, look at your organization. Can you handle this amount of active construction on your active right away? Look at every single element of your organization and make sure that you're about two steps ahead of when you're going to transition into a different phase of your project. And when I say organization, it's the size It's also the experience and it's understanding how important it is to have certain types of experience in-house versus those that you can just buy from the marketplace. Yeah, you know, critical, critical stuff. I was just having a conversation with a GM who's, you know, in the process of early stages of a huge capital program. And I says, you need operations people on board yesterday to be helping you develop design criteria and specs. So let's shift to uh, another topic and let's talk about expectations a little bit. And how do you manage setting reasonable expectations around your projects? Why don't we start with you? Sure. I talked a little bit about it already, but, you know, historically, the the traditional capital construction environment around the railroad, you know, the railroad looked to the project, the project said, hey, we need this, we need this. But again, we historically kind of took took the backseat, right? We would be, be there to guide support along the way. You fast forward to now, and that is guide, support, direct, and advise, because that ability to look down the project pipeline drives today more more than ever before how we look at things like attrition and hiring, particularly of those skilled railroad support services. I could talk about hiring and program hiring and focused hiring for hours and hours and hours, because no matter how big of a capital project you have, there will be a level of railroad support service required in an active railroad environment. Signal cut-ins, right? You can contract out the majority of your signal installation, but the day you want to turn that on and bring it into the active railroad environment, you're reliant on your qualified resources to do just that. And we all know the training time from the date of hire to initial training to on-the-job training to in-the-field availability for let's say a signal maintainer, we're talking a minimum of a year. So asking the pressing questions beyond that project, but hey, what do you have planned eight months from now, 10 months from now, five years from now? Because we have to marry this all together with an industry that is seeing regular and if not regular increasing attrition levels, right? Just based on hiring cycles. So it can quickly, without that level of in-your-face collaboration, it can quickly snowball into something that if you've lived it, you see this snowball rolling at you, getting bigger and bigger and bigger and more difficult to to dodge. Yeah. Yeah. 
you know, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the subject of tie-ins and, you know, we could probably spend days talking about that, but not just having the people, but having the plans in place, right? Of, you know, we always used to sweat those weekend shutdowns and, you know, and then the timeline of where they had to be for each specific element before you'd have to maybe consider stopping them so you could get back into revenue in time for the morning rush. So all good stuff. Michelle, what about you and expectations? Yeah. I mean, Ryan, so much of what you said just kind of like sparked different thoughts in my head because, you know, you talk about how your program has grown exponentially. You know, we've got unprecedented infrastructure dollars that are going to be pushed into all of our systems if we're very lucky. And we really got to understand what a stress that's going to have on a human resource and human capital pool that right now the forces of attrition are huge. And it's experience that's retiring out or, or just resigning out. And so I think a, a huge challenge is going to be setting expectations for these very expansive programs that are going to be springing up all over the place. So that's a future problem that I think we hope to have. But you're talking about long lead times. Ryan, you nailed yeah. it. I mean, you know, if it's a year to grow a seasoned signal maintainer, another year to grow you know, any other sort of technical expertise in the field. And so it's just, I got to tell you, it's really hard for us. And this is, it's not a unique issue, but it's also an issue that is related to an organization that typically has not had a dedicated funding source. So general fund for capital projects, we're highly grant dependent and highly dependent on funds that come from local counties or the state that then get put into projects. So oftentimes we're in a position where we're sitting there, we're trying to collect the funds to be able to fill the budget so that we can then go get the job done. And so what will happen is, and this happened on one of the last grade separation projects that, you know, we had spent about eight years trying to get the funds together to build what ended up being a $200 million project And kind of like last minute, we got $80 million that broke loose from the state. And I got to say, we were like, oh, my God, it happened. Great. And then also we found ourselves in a position where, again, organizationally, we weren't quite ready to deliver that project. And so we had to like play a bit of catch up. So to me, planning, planning, planning is the most important thing. And you're so right. It's not a year. You know, a year in railroad is yesterday. So, I mean, I think we just got to be sure as an organization that we start thinking in five-year chunks. And there's there's maybe some parallel processing that says, okay, what if this doesn't happen? But I think what could be helpful as an organization and even as an organization within a, a pretty busy region out here in the Bay Area where we've got 27 different agencies, figuring out how to coordinate across the region in terms of doing the work with connecting transit providers. It's back to plan like hell and communicate even better. Uh, I like that plan like hell. That's a good technical term. I'm glad you brought up infrastructure funding because talk about setting up expectations for us, right? So all this money is going to come, hopefully, which is great. 
but it's going to be a challenge for all of us in the industry to be responsive. And, you know, there's just not going to be enough of us to go around. And we often, not just in transit or railroads or commuter projects, but in all infrastructure projects, right? The management of schedule and budget and expectations about hitting all those things. And in terms of federal money, being able to not just allocate the money, but then the pressure to spend the money so that we actually show we're making progress. So I got a couple more topics I want to touch on. It's just to give you a heads up. I want to explore is community engagement and then risk. And, you know, I wanted to start with risk, but I knew we wouldn't even get on to anything else if that's what we started the discussion with today. But let's talk a little bit about community engagement and who owns that community engagement. Ryan, I'm sure we have the same answer, but why don't you go with it? Okay. I'm interested to see where we align. But based on my experience, the railroad operation has to own the bulk of, if not all of the community engagement. And I say that because, again, doing this in an active environment, the first thing that I look at when any project is proposed is what does the service diversion look like? Because it's great to build out new infrastructure, additional infrastructure, but you need to preserve the reason why you're building that infrastructure. And you need to be very careful about striking the balance of project delivery in passenger support, passenger information, and service delivery, right? And I think that in a previous world, I'd look at a budget for a project and I'd look for the line item of public engagement and i go, ha, I'd wipe my hands of it and go, nope, the project has this. But fast forward that, right? And maybe this was a Ryan who was a little more junior in his, in his uh, management career. But ultimately, when a passenger is impacted by any capital project, I actually, I want to be used to the term passenger. I'm going to say stakeholder because this now goes beyond the passenger experience. But when we talk about other stakeholders, cities, towns, abutters, right? What's going to happen? And the railroad, by taking the lead in that engagement, not to foreshadow the fact that that capital is going to build a great station, a great signal system, a great bit of infrastructure, when the project is done and all the lights have been turned on and the keys are handed over, in my case, to the railroad to now operate and maintain it, I will always be the face that that stakeholder interacts with. So setting that relationship right out of the gate to me is a top priority. And I just assume control the destiny of that again, from the very first public kickoff meeting right through to the completion of the project and the operation. Okay. You have my vote on that, Michelle. <laughs> Me too. No, I mean, I, I absolutely agree with you. And, and with each one of our projects, we have a government affairs person who is attached to that project and we have operations that is attached to that project. And, you know, we've got basically two huge constituents. It's the passengers and it's the communities in which we operate. And we have to keep both of those entities happy because that's the only way we get to continue to build the programs because we need them to support the programs. And so we need to build them responsibly. And so when I thought of who owns it, I also thought of this issue of, oh, well, you know, we're doing a signal system and grade crossing protection cut over. And so we're going to let the contractor go out and pull the permits and deal with, you know, sort of the traffic diversion plan. That's like nails on a chalkboard to me, because so many times it's on these small issues where you're like, oh, it's the contractor's job to do that. And yet it's the railroad that has that relationship. And so where it might be their job and it's a real small thing, but it is the Caltrain reputation that's going to take a hit if we're seen as 
you know, jam in a community to get a road closed last minute or whatever. We have to heal that relationship. So in my view, we just need to be responsible for making sure it, it doesn't get broken to begin with. And so that's just another aspect of construction that I think even if you would want to transfer that, you just can't and you shouldn't want to because your reputation is all you got. Yeah. You know, and speaking of that, one of the projects I had in Denver, we were a commuter rail, new commuter rail. When you talk about the community is opening a line with quiet zones. And uh, we were a little bit lagging on that. And it was very, you know, to this particular line opened, uh, I don't know, six, six years ago. Right. And it's still an issue we wrestle with, with the community here. Well, let's talk about risk. And this is one of my favorite topics when we talk about delivery methods. You know, we've heard it in a variety of different ways. Some outlooks are transfer as much risk as you can, or make sure you transfer the appropriate risk, or develop the approach that shares risk based on which party is best positioned to manage that risk to minimize risk for the overall project. So I'm eager to hear your thoughts around maybe what you all were thinking about or what you've learned as you've progressed. That's a loaded question, I know, and it it could be days worth of conversation, but... I'll jump in because to me, this really is one of the most difficult things to contemplate as you get into, you know, a large capital project. And when you think about it, just as an operating railroad, we are in the business of appropriately managing risk. So it's kind of like core to what we do. Now, transitioning that into bringing sort of, let's call it a a somewhat large contractor onto the property and into the mix. I'll be honest, I think when we started down the path of design build. It was this notion that all of this risk was going to be transferred to the contractor. And that did not turn out to be the case. And I think that's a big lessons learned in terms of not like if we had done things differently, all of the risk would have been transferred. In my view, you should want to manage some of the risks yourself. And to me, the bigger question is what tools can you use to appropriately allocate the risks to various parties? In some cases, what we've done, and we found this to work pretty well in situations where you want to allocate risk is, and I'll say we've done this in sort of a remedial fashion. So I just would love to see how this would work out if we had done it at the beginning of the project and that was core to the project. So when I say remedial, it's like, oh my God, the project's in trouble. You got to reset the project team. You got to get together, you know, a brand new partnering session and you got to figure out how to work through contract changes. We've just finished that at Caltrain. And one of the core things that we did is we just sat down with the contractor and said, okay, look, let's just put all of that away. The last five years, put it away. Let's just sit here and identify every single risk that might materialize on the rest of this program. Let's put dollar amounts to it. And then let's figure out how to incentivize things so that if we appropriately manage these risks together, there's going to be a pot of money at the end of the day that you end up sharing. And we found that to be a really good tool. But again, it's it's really being honest with yourself about what the risks are and identifying them and measuring them, however you measure them, we monetize them. But I think it would be very naive to think that you could develop a project that transfers all the risk and says, here, contractor, take care of it. Give me the keys when you're done. Yeah, that's great insight, Michelle. And I think, you know, many of us have been at that reset point with projects and where you just got to sit down and say, okay, the past is the past. And how do we achieve the future and move ahead? Ryan, what are some of your thoughts? I think on a lot of that, 
you know, when, when a project does reach a point where it's time to hit that reset button, I'll go back to something I said very early on when we first started to talk, and that is from the very inception, from those initial meetings, establish that baseline. And I've made a point to set my expectations very clear to the MBTA's capital team, to their contractors, to their subs, to anyone who has a key role in the project. Because in times of chaos, when I ask for that reset button to even be uncovered so we can hit it, I start to bring people right back to the baseline. Remember our goals when we first sat and talked two years ago. You know, and Michelle, I think you're right. Believe it or not, financial motivation can often be that reward at the end of a successful project for a contractor. You know, and I think we'd be lying if we if we thought otherwise. I think that there is a gratification in having your name on a successful project. But at the end of the day, people bid on projects for a specific amount of money. You know, I think that that collaboration. You always have to have that baseline to revert back to because as projects go on, particularly in this industry, seldom is it an 18-month build. Seldom. You know, changes come up, material issues come up, labor issues come up. So it's not uncommon to have a, you know, 16-month, 18-month project now turn into a five-year project. And imagine the changes in key personnel over that five year, right? Always keep those guiding principles from your baseline is have a way to revert back and hit that refresh button. Yeah. Wow. You know, this has been a tremendous amount of experience that you both have shared and lessons learned and a wealth of knowledge. And, you know, I've learned a lot of in this discussion today with the two of you. So closing remarks, is there anything either of you'd like to say any piece of advice before we wrap it all up? Ryan, I'm really glad to have made your acquaintance today. My piece of advice is always, and and it doesn't matter whether it's in capital project delivery, I think as an industry, we need to make sure that we meet the Ryans of this world and we get his phone number. And when we need to really pull on the experience of the industry, have the ability to pick up the phone and call people. And what I've always loved about being in this industry is I find that everybody is willing to share their experience. And I think it just makes for a better project always by pulling on other people's experience. And so, you know, I certainly have learned a lot today. So I really appreciate the conversation. Great. Ryan. So Michelle, call me anytime. (laughs) Uh, No, I mean, that brings up a great point because as agencies programs develop and expand, you know, the industry, we are so lucky to have our industry groups like the commuter rail coalition, because I've learned we're all fighting the same battles. We really are. We're struggling with funding, resources, whether they're materials, people, or just bandwidth, time, time to get a project complete. So the more we rely on our peers and our contacts, and the more we talk about these issues, the quicker we realize we're fighting a lot of the same battles, and the quicker we can work to help each other save time or redirect before the snowball I mentioned earlier, before that touches down at the base lodge. Right. You know, but I think that, uh, you know, we're lucky to have the venues that we do have. And Michelle, an absolute pleasure learning about uh, the struggles you're facing and look forward to many more discussions with you. you All right. Well, thank you, Michelle. Thank you, Ryan. Great discussion today and uh, look forward to seeing you both down the road, maybe at the rail conference in uh, sunny California in a couple months. Absolutely. Dave, thanks a lot. Ryan, thanks so much.
Thank you so much, Dave, Michelle. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Commuter Rail Conversations. I want to extend my gratitude to Dave Genova for hosting and my thanks to Michelle Bouchard and Ryan Caholan for bringing such candor to the conversation. We invite you, our listeners, to join us for future episodes of Commuter Rail Conversations, where we will be interviewing industry leaders representing all facets of Commuter Rail. Until we welcome you back again, this is Kellyanne Gallagher wishing you good health.